HMP Governance Lab podcasts. I'm Scott Greer again, and I'm here to talk with you about interest groups in American politics. Let's begin with something that all political scientists are obliged to say. There are no special interests. Everybody has interests. Many of us have many interests, and many of us participate in groups that support our interests. None of us are special. None of those interests are special. Special interests is simply a way of discrediting somebody else's interests. So if I say the tobacco companies are a special interest, all I'm doing is trying to delegitimize them. If I say that advocates for transsexual rights are a special interest, all I'd be trying to do is discredit them. Instead, the way to think about politics is we have many interests, many of them well-formed and articulated, and even represented by professional lobbyists and advocates to whom we donate, and many others sort of hazy and inchoate. Uh, we'd all like to have a higher income, a more relaxed life, and cleaner air, but whether and how we translate that into anything we care about is a very imprecise thing, and getting us to care about this and not that is a lot of the art of politics. I'm going to talk through basically three points. The first is the interest group ecology of the Beltway, which is changing a lot. Now, then after the Beltway, we'll talk about the variant on the state and increasingly local level. And then we'll talk about some interesting ways to circumvent what might otherwise be a very dispiriting landscape in which particular interests, basically those with money, tend to do better. So let's take it away with the Beltway. The Beltway tends to obsess Americans, but it is by no means the place that all the politics are made. So quite often you need to think about very carefully about whether you're focusing your attention in the right place. Maybe you should be thinking about state or local action. And equally pay attention to the extent to which good or bad things do or do not skip outside the Beltway that surrounds Washington, D.C. The Beltway is the preserve of organized interests. So organized interests are an enormous number of trade associations, individual lobbyists higher down to the level of individual healthcare systems have their own DC lobbyist. There's big players like the American Medical Association, for example, and then there's lots and lots of little individual players. Price of entry, starting price, meaning below which you won't get anything, is about $12,000 a month for a competent lobbyist. Now, a lot of lobbyists inflame this by demonstrating their return on investment, either by, frankly, taking organizations for suckers, offering them something that they know is politically impossible. But a lot of lobbyists also actually are engaged in a business in which they try to make themselves into something less like a sheer cost center by creating regulatory complexity that benefits their employers. So I work for a hospital in a given place, as a lobbyist, how do I justify my fees? Well, one of the best things I can do is apply my expertise in governmental affairs to cook up some little benefit to my employer, pretend it's a health system, which creates a little complexity that I can push for and get into law and then push through the regulatory process and then need to defend. In other words, by doing that, I've been able to say, here is my contribution to the bottom line. And in most organizations, demonstrating your contribution to the bottom line is a good way to retain your job. So we have a structural incentive for lobbyists to make American legislation weirder, 
more complex and frankly collectively worse because one of the best ways to demonstrate that you're not just an irritating cost center that drags the CEO to Washington is to create little niches and sources of money. Healthcare is absolutely rife with this, right? Why is it that in Michigan you're required to get an appointment with an optician if you haven't had an, a prescription for the glasses in the last year? Is it because you can't tell if your vision has changed, or is it because opticians successfully lobbied for a nice little earner for themselves? I think you know the answer. Why is it that in Indiana, a jury of incumbent hairdressers have to vote on whether you can set up as a licensed hairdresser? Is it because people in Indiana are unusually committed to beauty? Or is it because somebody managed to build a nice little earner for incumbent hairdressers and barbers into Indiana state law? Sorry, that last was a pair of state examples, but Washington is also full of them. They're just much more obscure. Now, healthcare is extraordinarily full of lobbies. Everybody's lobbying constantly, partly because there's so much money, but also because there's so much regulation and there's so much public money in the healthcare system. And there's a lot of zero-sum fights when pharmaceutical companies, pharmacies, pharmaceutical benefits manufacturers, health insurers, and patients' advocates get into a fight. It's pretty much zero-sum. And they have a lot of incentive to make sure that somebody else is the one that loses out on whatever they're fighting about. So they hire lobbyists, many, many lobbyists. Healthcare is by far the biggest Washington lobbying sector. Its only real rival is defense, which has many of the same characteristics of huge entrenched players that don't make a lot of sense without understanding government regulation and purchasing and, reg and policy decisions. There are, however, a number of particularly big beasts. The American Medical Association and the Medical Societies are gigantic. Not so much because doctors join the AMA out of a shared sense of objectives, but because the AMA is involved in essentially setting the Medicare pricing structure. And that location means that it's really powerful. In general, medical societies are trusted not because their lobbyists are better and nicer and smarter people than other folks' lobbyists, but because politicians know that the public has a sort of transitive property in which they figure that if you trust your doctor, then you trust the American Medical Association. I hope you don't think that this is the case. The AMA is probably no better or worse than any other trade group in Washington that exists to enhance its members' income and status. But by and large, people assume that on the same basis that they trust their doctor, they trust the medical association. They trust their hospital. They trust their hospital's political objectives. People are much less likely to trust pharmaceutical companies and at the absolute bottom of public reputation or health insurance firms, which is one of the major reasons that kicking health insurance firms around publicly is something that's so popular. They're basically weak. They're basically weak because they're aware that nobody really likes them and they're not very good at fulfilling their core functions of rationalizing care or maintaining cost discipline in the system, partly because every time they try to do it, they gore somebody's ox, it is rediscovered that they're unpopular, and they get regulated or the policies that they're proposing don't work. Now, this is against the backdrop of billionaires, and billionaires tend to fall outside the normal interest group ecology, which is heavily stalemated. And they can often produce some very strange effects, right? So one of the striking things in the early Trump years was the absolute ferocity with which Republicans tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act, 
despite not having anything that looked like a worked out replacement that wouldn't be a disaster for the structure of the healthcare industry. Now you ask yourself, why would Republicans so frenetically vote for something that would gut a lot of the American healthcare sector? Because if you're a hospital system chief executive, it's pretty much your obligation to get to know your member of Congress, regardless of your politics, donate to their campaigns, golf with them, bend their ear, use donations and attendance at political events to make the point to them that they should fight for your interests because you're not just giving them money, you're a big employer, you're an anchor for their towns. In a lot of declining slash sparsely populated slash rural areas, the economic development strategy hinges on the availability of healthcare, not just for the middle-class jobs, but also to attract or retain retirees, attract or retain new businesses, and so forth and so forth. So you can take it as a given that any competent member of Congress knows the chief executives of the relevant systems, and you can take it as a given that the chief executives of the relevant systems donate to and know their members of Congress pretty well. And yet these members of Congress repeatedly voted for things that would have absolutely scythed through and caused huge problems in the American healthcare industry. Why did they do it? Because by and large, in a nationalized political system, it, they were more frightened of and more energized by the work of national scale networks, things like the Koch brothers, Americans for Prosperity, than they were by the local effects to which they would be sensitized by local donors. This is kind of amazing, right? If I'm a member of Congress voting from a rural area reporting voting to repeal the Affordable Care Act, I'd be voting to pretty much gut not just an important local middle-class industry, but also one that is the threshold if you're going to, for example, attract a manufacturing plant, because manufacturers don't like plants where there's no healthcare access. And yet, in my calculus as a member of Congress, I was presumably more afraid of Americans for Prosperity and what they'd be able to do to me in the next primary elections than in what the my golfing partner, the C-suite of that local healthcare system said to me when I last talked to them about healthcare. So the billionaires can really mess up the system. We have this hyperpluralized and largely stalemated system in which anybody who can raise 12,000 bucks a month has got a Washington representative of some sort. And on the other hand, you can still get a fairly high level of chaos driven by the preoccupations of individual billionaires. I've been hard on the Koch brothers, but they're also a major reason that we're seeing a push for decarceration. Um, they're at least in ideologically novel. Now, at the state level, this is frequently worse. States have term limits. Term limits are a terrible idea. Uh, essentially, all the political science research is that term limits are a terrible idea because they mean that nobody builds up any expertise and they maximize your incentive to be thinking about your next job. So they don't just make sure that you come in regularly not knowing anything. You leave before you know anything. They also give you a lot of incentive to be thinking about your next position, which makes you a very easy person to buy because you have to have one foot out the door. And they also recruit people who are either very young or sort of semi-retired, which produces other kinds of distortion in expertise. The result is that they're dependent on lobbyists, even if they're not relying on those lobbyists for their next job after their term limited out. And they also are by and large invisible. Stop for a second and tell me if you can name your state representative and your state senator. They get very little media attention, less and less with the decline of local media, right? So say the Detroit newspapers have incentive to talk about national politics 
and they can buy coverage from the Associated Press and Gannett very easily. They have incentive to talk about statewide political figures because all 10 million people in Michigan experience Governor Whitmer, for example. But their incentive to talk about an individual state legislator is really limited because most people don't live in that legislator's district. Given that, state reps, to recap, don't know much, are frequently term limited, and are highly dependent on lobbyists for information. It is therefore not surprising that they're sitting ducks for lobbyists in general. It's a standing joke that the people who know the most about how to govern any given state are the liquor distributors because they're really powerful lobbies in every state house. But also, they are responsive to, for example, ALEC, which is a very successful network for conservative legislation. So we use anti-plagiarism tools to look for identical language copied from state to state. And over and over again, we find that a lot of the conservative political agenda is ALEC model bills. This is actually quite cool. Right? If you, putting aside the substantive content of the bills, which you can judge as you choose, essentially they say, if you're on the team, we'll bring you together for a conference, we'll talk about the joys of this policy, and we'll hand you the bill. And then you can turn around and basically put the bill straight into the hopper. Trivia, a lot of states there is a physical hopper where you drop a paper copy of the legislation and introduce it and it ends up in law. So you can actually trace ALEC model legislation appearing in tons of different states. Model legislation's nothing new. We've had model criminal codes, for example, for ages. But this is a really nice exploitation of the fact that state representatives have very little accountability. What accountability they have tends to be simple partisanship. They're frequently so gerrymandered that partisanship doesn't matter. Sorry, they're frequently so gerrymandered that partisanship is all that matters in the primary elections. And they can make some money and do some good things for their coalition and their friends by introducing these ALEC bills. This is all pretty depressing, right? Because it fits with the general American discourse about money that money is how you get attention. So let me try and end on a slightly different note. Because while the vast disproportion of money and organizational resources and lobbyists in American politics is toward business interests, because they're the ones who can identify the ROI of, for example, getting a tax break, or alternatively, the potential losses of some regulatory initiative that would interfere with their operations in their eyes. But on the other hand, you don't see quite that much disproportion in the actual policy outcomes. And, for example, a policy debate where there's only one side is one where I guarantee there's not going to be no change. A policy debate with two or more sides is where there at least is a fight. And what you find is that there's ways to argue that members of Congress, and this is part of the appeal of ALEC and state legislators, want to actually make policy. Sometimes they have to make policy because that's the best way to get reelected. Sometimes they want to make good policy because they think that will benefit the coalitions that put them in office. You assume that they want to get reelected no matter what, because even if their objectives are entirely to improve the world, you best improve the world by being in office. That's crucial. So good policy ideas are still appreciated. There's asymmetries in this. In certain policy areas, some parties are more interested in good ideas than others. But nonetheless, presenting what looks like a costed and thought out policy that they can imagine getting credit for and even passing is something that's attractive. And that means that there's privilege for expertise. Secondly, 
lobbyists do a lot of cheap talk. If you let lobbyists BS you in the technical sense of it's not a lie because they're indifferent to the truth value, then they will. And a lot of lobbyists don't do anything else. When I interview lobbyists, I usually give them about 20 minutes and I can do six in a day. When I interview civil servants or civil society advocates or politicians, I budget at least an hour and a half because they'll often talk that much. The lobbyists are typically in it for the game and they don't have a lot to say other than tell you what they basically do and their talking points. Whereas the politicians, the civil servants, journalists, experts all tend to be much more interesting. Given that, as a politician, you have to be very good at figuring out what lobbyists to listen to. You can sometimes just be crudely transactional. I'll vote for the thing that my local lobby or my donor says is important. But a lot of the time, you actually are listening to see what you can do in order to improve your election and re-election chances. And being credible and making clear statements, not just about political hardball, but also about your policy analysis and the quality of your research is really important. That's why quite frequently with the one pager that a good advocate brings in, there will be academic articles tucked in there. There will be documents that are tested in peer review and scholarly research. There are a lot of smart people in all areas of politics, and a lot of them actually want to find out that a policy will do what it is intended to do. We still make a lot of mistakes, but it means that having a reputation as credible, competent, and prepared is very helpful. So... This has been a discussion primarily of interest groups and advocacy. I just want to take away a few points. The first one is that the Beltway healthcare arena is ridiculously hyper-pluralized. Everybody's got lobbyists. There is a rough rank ordering of whose lobbyists matter most, starting with doctors and healthcare systems. But there's lots of other people involved in lots of sub-arenas. The people who care about payment reforms don't intersect all that often with people who are primarily interested in abortion. Now, the rise of the roving billionaires in politics has disrupted this a little bit, as we saw with the efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act, but it's not clear how and when billionaires decide that they're going to engage in health or public health policy with their money. I'm not sure anyone could have predicted the Koch brothers' effects either on ACA repeal efforts or on decarceration as a public policy. Outside Washington, in the state capitals, there's a much less visible political scene. The collapse of local media has been much more damaging. Uh, term limits mean that people tend to know less, have less understanding of the levers of power, and be more interested in getting a good job as after they head out of office, a horizon that they can see approaching quickly. So frankly, lobbyists tend to often have even more power. And there's been real efforts to exploit that, which have been far more successful on the right than on the left. ALEC has had a lot of influence on a lot of public policy areas, whereas efforts to create something equivalent on the left have not worked particularly well. Local politics has got some of this going on, but local politics, A, we have 90,000 local governments, where do you plan to start? And B, often doesn't require such strong interest groups in order to influence it. There's still an element in which, if you get local enough, a few concerned citizens can actually matter. So what is what inferences do we draw from this? First of all, there are no special interests, there's interests. The question is whether interests are organized. Once they're organized, they have a chance. They're in. They can think of different things to do, be it action in the streets, such as demonstrations, or be it things that you do if you have money but no followers, such as the ad campaigns that you see from health insurance companies. 
I pick on health insurance companies partly because they are, over and over again, just about the least popular legal industry in the United States. So the scale of their political success, which is limited but still impressive, is a reflection of precisely what you can get away with if you can buy yourself good lobbying and good research, because it's certainly not out of a public love for them and their services. Also, if you develop a reputation as not engaging in cheap talk, as being credible, as representing something that matters, either a serious skilled policy analysis or some element of a constituency group that needs a hearing, or a predictable and powerful source of campaign finance, then you can get in the door. Politicians are constantly looking for things that they can champion, things they can say, things that they can oppose, things that they can start to get to catch fire, because that's necessary to staying in politics, let alone getting promoting yourself to a better office in politics. And so they're very interested in people who come to them with something that is some combination of going to look good, possibly successful, and serves the constituencies that that politician has to value most. And interest groups' job in many ways is to provide politicians with that information. That, I guess, is the way I want to end, is that you have interests. Your interests are no more or less special than anybody else's interests. It's not completely driven by money for all that it looks like it is. And there's a lot of opportunities to take advantage of the fact that politics is a hectic, information-poor game full of people who really want to find some opportunity to make a mark, not just because that might be what motivated them into politics, but also because that is necessary for survival in a game where you have to re-interview with the population every few years for your job. So take those issues away. Don't be afraid of interest groups because interest groups at bottom are simply a group of citizens who decided to do something together. And those are the groups that can, with surprising effectiveness sometimes, counterbalance the agenda and policy effects of groups whose main attribute is that they simply have a lot of cash and a position that they wish to defend. I'm Scott Greer, and this was a HMB Governance Lab conversation about interest groups. I hope it cheered you up. This has been an HMP Governance Lab podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our research, come and find us at www.governancelab.org or follow us on Twitter at HMP GovLab. <laughs>